We watched every movie last year. We rated every kiss and every tear. We saw Tom Cruise sucking blood. Meg Ryan hit the booze. We saw 13 with you, Grant. And seven by John Hughes. The critic is a mystery. No one knows what he thinks. Except for Jay Sherman. Who always says... It stinks! <gasps> How awkward. Hi, this is host of the Shermometer, Matt Bradley Shergi. Uh, this show is going to start with a brief uh, interview Thrasher and I did with Al Jean, who co-created The Critic, and he's been involved with The Simpsons uh, ever since the beginning, more or less. He's currently an executive producer on the show. Um, so we had a quick chat with him about The Critic, and I think there's even a little Simpsons stuff in there. And then after that, you'll move on to our regularly scheduled programming on The Critic. We're going to be talking about Season 1, Episode 5, A Little Deb Will Do Ya. Enjoy. So, uh, hi, this is uh, Matt Bradley Shergi with Shermometer Critiquing the Critic, a podcast looking at the acclaimed 90 series The Critic. Uh, with us, we have a very special guest for a, an interview here. You might know him as the executive producer of The Simpsons. He was also the co-creator of Teen Angel and The Critic. Al Jean, welcome to Shermometer. Very happy to be here. When you look at The Critic, um, it's one of those shows that almost seems like a time capsule looking back on it because you used to have all sorts of film critic TV shows on TV at the time, but now with YouTube, everyone can make their own little movie review show, be a critic and so forth. Yes, I remember there was a joke. I forget how much it was that he made something like $375,000 a year and had all this power and everybody was giving him free stuff. And it is just a complete uh, era that's gone. <laughs> Um, you know, he was obviously a composite of Siskel and Ebert and, and the control they had, you know, over the film industry, the, the importance of two thumbs up, you know, was hard to imagine now. You know, if you had gotten a third season, uh, would you have continued to soften the look of the critic or do you think you would have liked to have gone back to the more, uh, hard edged, uh, grotesque designs of the first season? We, um, had scripts ready in case we did a third season. One I remember was um, a parody of Single White Female, where uh, there was a guy who became obsessed with Jay and wanted to look like him and take over his life. And had we done it, it would have definitely been the same look as season two. Um, what happened was the first season, the original drawing was David Silverman's, and it was based slightly on Andy Kaufman. It um, was kind of a design by committee after that and the second season look i always think is much better so we would have stayed with all that oh matt yes with all the season two look um so i mean there's so many different people that um <coughs> excuse me so many great actors that were on the simpsons but what is it about john lovett's doing his guest roles on The Simpsons that, um, you know, inspired you to bring him on to play the lead part of The Critic? Well, I can remember it very distinctly. We were working on a show with Jim Brooks about a film critic, and he came in and had just seen an advanced screening of the movie League of Their Own, where Lovitz was great. Hmm. And he said, what do you think of John Lovitz uh, as The Critic? And we said, we love Lovitz. He's just the best. He's hilarious. And, of course, we did the stupidest thing you can do, which is to write a script, or actually to, to try to sell Lovitz on the show before we had the script. And he said, well, wait, I want to read a script. <laughs> We're like, well, it'll be good. 
And uh, he, he, we did write the script, and he did like it. And the only difficulty was he was so busy at the point that we did it that it was going to be hard. So we said, hey, if we make it animated, it'll fit in his schedule, and we will be able to do all the film parodies we do without you know breaking the budget. So it was just one thing, you know, it, it was now people would go, oh, you must have just wanted to do an animated show after you'd done The Simpsons. But it was something we had backed into a very, it, it, it wasn't at all our first idea. You know, speaking of film parodies, something that I noticed while rewatching uh, the two seasons of The Critic, this seems like such an anomaly now, but how did you get through two seasons without doing any Star Wars jokes? I think that at that point, it seemed like, we had certainly done them on The Simpsons where Homer reveals the ending of The Empire Strikes Back. It seemed like Star Wars was in a lull. I think it was before The Phantom Menace and certainly long after Return of the Jedi. So we were doing, I remember the years that we were doing the critics, the Jurassic Park was definitely huge. And you can see that as it is now <laughs> reflected in the, in the show. And it, as you say, it's a time capsule, like with The Lion King and Howard Stern and it's it's uh, I, it's funny we're watching the my wife and I are watching that O.J. Simpson movie on FXX, and that's when we were writing the critic was right at the same time, and if you want to see what was going on in pop culture at that point, that's it. So um, I was wondering, have you ever seen the documentary on Roger Ebert called Life Itself that came out a few years ago? I loved it. I loved it. I thought that. Um, you know, I met the two of them. I directed them when they did The Critic. And uh, it was funny. The, the documentary talked about Cisco playing pranks on Ebert, and uh, the two of them went up in each other. I definitely saw that in my little meeting the one day I had with them where I would direct the two of them for audio, and Gene would go, which was better? You know, <laughs> who was better, me or Roger? And I'd go, oh, you were both fine. And he goes, no, really, who is better? I want to know. <laughs> I really wouldn't say and uh, I guess I guess Roger was a little better, but they were you know they were both wonderful, and it was really great of them to do the show. And that's probably you know everyone's favorite episode of the critic. Is is there any uh, movie that came out uh, since the critic went off the air that you really really wish you could have given the critic treatment to? Oh, there have been a lot of things where I just thought, oh, this is just an insane. Um, this year, I just thought Spotlight was so boring and. Um, <laughs> not at all like a very interesting film to be best picture. I would we would have definitely given it to um, oh, I forget the name of that movie. That was the best picture that Ben Affleck directed um, about the rescue in Iran. I just thought that was the stupidest thing ever. Argo. So believe me, far, uh, what's that? Was it Argo? Argo. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, like that scene that where the. The two guys are, are trying to answer their phone, but they're being blocked by a film shoot. <laughs> they're trying to make it dramatic. <laughs> so, yeah, so it would have all been on the critic. You know, I just can't believe the trend lately of taking a book that's not that big and splitting it into a trilogy, like with The Hobbit in particular. That's like a 200-page children's book. And it's like, what else can you make up for these characters to do to kill time to make it into a, a, a trilogy? Well, they ruined it with The Hunger Games, where they took the third book and made it into two films. And that's the first one, which I saw, was so boring. Yeah. I, I just said, I'm never seeing the next one. And, and I think they really <laughs> hurt themselves. It's, yeah, it's, it's crazy. I mean, you do things for money, but there's a point where you're, you're cutting your own throat. 
you know, you had Siskel and Ebert, uh, Gene Shalit, uh, and uh, Rex Reed, among other uh, critics on the show. Is there anyone from the world of uh, film criticism that you wanted to get on the show but weren't able to wrangle? I don't think there's anybody else that we asked. Certainly Siskel and Ebert were the epitome of what we were doing. Um, it would have been nice to get somebody like Pauline Kael, but uh, I don't think we ever asked her. And as you say, now it's just kind of a... If you said, who's the most influential film critic, I'd go, you know, Scott, Richard Corliss, but it's just not the same. Everybody just, you know, is combined in Rotten Tomatoes into a number. And it's funny because I also think it it means that things are averaged out, so they're a little more consistent, but you miss when, when Roger and Gene would really champion a film like Days of Heaven, that documentary, that it would really get out there. And um, not to say, oh, I miss the old days, but... Uh, it's too bad. They were colorful characters. Who was the first film critic you ever saw on TV? I would guess Gene Shalit on the Today Show because I'm pretty sure he preceded Siskel and Ebert. I remember them, him saying if if Diane Keaton doesn't win an Oscar for Mr. Goodbye, there is no God. That was a, <laughs> uh, that was a pretty uh, memorable... You know, I mean, he was looking for attention and then... I was really pleased when the Simpson movie came out that he, he gave it a good review. I mean, to be sort of the first um, critic I remember seeing, that was wonderful. You look uh, Looking back over the show, are there any, uh, are there any uh, jokes or film parodies you worked into the critics that, uh, looking back on, uh, you regret? Do you think you went too easy or too soft on anybody? No, um... If I regret anything, we were – there were two things. I, I think that after the first season, and it didn't work on ABC numbers-wise. It didn't. When they canceled, I understood. I thought that the testing showed he was too sad and too much of a loser, and I, I realized that I could see how people felt that, and I wish he hadn't made him so miserable in season one. And then the second thing is um, that we certainly got – pretty goofy and i like that we had a, a kid from easter island shaped like an easter island head and, <laughs> uh, but but some of the jokes we did with his father i w- I, I would look at them now and i go wow we were really <laughs> what were we <laughs> so, um i could the writing could have been a little tighter but it was it was something where we were doing it from fun and exhilaration so i think people caught that and i i can't tell you how much i appreciate that people still remember the show when we were Doing the Simpsons at the Hollywood Bowl, uh, John Lovitz was in it, and he mentioned the critic, and he'd go, "Do you remember the critic theme?" And everybody would cheer, it would make me really happy. And then he'd go, "Should we do be canceled?" <laughs> really funny. And that got a big laugh too. Well, Al, uh, thank you so much for your time for this uh, interview. We'll um, we'll send you a link on Twitter once the it goes up on the show. Thank you, and I wish you the best of luck. Absolutely. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Hello, and welcome to Shermometer Critiquing the Critic, a weekly look at the critic animated series from the 90s that featured the voice of John Lovitz. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergi. With me is William Thrasher. How do you do? And this time around, we're talking about season one, episode five, A Little Deb Will Do Ya. We're going by the episode order. 
That's on the Critic DVD box set if you're following along. I want to give a special thanks to Sean Franson and a very special thanks to Peter Monks. They both uh, contributed at the appropriate amounts at our Indiegogo campaign. But if you want to chip in money to this podcast, it's not too late. You can uh, do it on a monthly basis with uh, any amount of your choosing. I think the minimum is a dollar at patreon.com slash M-A-T-W-B-T. That's patreon.com slash M-A-T-W-B-T. also want to give a thanks out to Al Jean, co-creator of The Critic. We heard his interview at the top of the show, and uh, that was a lot of fun to do, wasn't it, Thrasher? I absolutely adored that. Right. I, I never thought we'd be able to get him. He was very generous uh, with his time and with uh, his information. And I, I like that, that you had some questions uh, to him about the uh, fabled season three that, that was not to pass. Yes, I've always been curious about that. And uh, there, there, of course, there was that one question that we didn't get to ask. Uh, yeah, but I'm, and that will not be asked. Not, not even as a joke will we ask that, huh? Uh, uh, maybe maybe, maybe for the season one wrap-up episode? Yeah, you know, I, I was thinking about it the other day. We should do a season one wrap-up episode, a season two wrap-up episode, and a series wrap-up episode. Mm. But um, that's that's for the future. I don't know what they are. Uh, anyway, season one, episode five, a little Deb will... Do ya? Uh, when did you first uh, see this episode, Thrasher? Uh, I saw this episode uh, when it first aired uh, back in the uh, mid-90s. Uh, and one of the things that stood out to me, and I didn't realize this until I rewatched the episode this morning, uh, I believe this was the only episode of The Critic I watched with my dad. And there's one simple little joke that got one of the biggest belly laughs I'd ever heard out of my dad before. But I'll get into that when we break down the plot of this episode. Yeah, um, you know, I did see all of season one of The Critic, at least when it originally aired, and I remember at this one as a kid finding it kind of boring, but I think now, especially watching it, um, followed uh, following last week's episode, Dial M for Mother, I think this is the better uh, of the two, and it gives Margot something to do, which well, that's the show doesn't always do. I want to point out this episode is directed by L.H. McMullen and written by Neil Scoville. Well, something that I think really speaks to the quality of the critic is that they didn't wait to exhaust all the obvious story potentials of Jay Sherman himself uh, before reaching into the broader universe of the show. I love that very early on we get two very strong episodes about his family, including this one, which is much more about the relationship between his sister and his mother rather than his own relationship with either of the two. Yeah, and although this episode does have a, a subplot of sorts, uh, of the sort of trope from season one, where Jay Sherman dates a disturbing woman, uh, um, well, it, it, the way it's handled, I think, is clever, and it actually ties in with, the, they set it up appropriately. It's no, not I just do, another nutbag in the theater, yeah. It's it's a nicely constructed B story, everything dovetails nicely, and the thing that, that I find fascinating is that both the A story and the B story kind of have the exact same amount of Jay Sherman. He's walking a perfect balance between those two threads. Right. I mean, this episode, too, because it, it focuses on the relationship a bit more between Jay, uh, you know, played by John Lovitz, and his sister Margot, who is uh, played by uh, Nancy Cartwright. That's right, Bart Simpson. It's, it is so refreshing to hear her do, doing a teenage girl rather than a preteen boy. Yeah, you know, her voice is Margot sounds more like a real voice, but you can still hear hints of Bart in there. I think, and that especially the scene where they're both in the treehouse uh, gave me strong Simpsons vibes because of so much of the early Simpsons was, you know, Bart in his treehouse and his buddies would be up there. 
or they'd, he'd have a heart-to-heart with his sister or, or what have you. But we're not talking about The Simpsons. We're talking allegedly about The Critic, Season well, 1, Episode 5, A Little Deb Will Do Ya. Well, speaking about uh, Jay Sherman's relationship with his, his sister Margot, something that is never spoken, but I love... I love that they they hint at that is that Margot is Jay Sherman's biggest fan. If you notice, her treehouse huh. is decorated with posters from Jay Sherman in coming attractions. I never noticed that, but that's a real, uh, real sweet, kind detail. But like, um, she always watches his show. I mean, she clearly, she clearly right. loves her older brother and loves everything he does. And I love that that that's their connection. They're not they're not snarky with each other. They don't shoot barbs at each other. They it's just an honest, caring sibling relationship. It's so beautiful. And it's especially beautiful when you compare it to how Jay is treated by his his mother is really hard on him. You know, his boss, his boss, Duke, is quite rude and mean to him. Even Doris uh, isn't the greatest to him. But his sister is nice. And his dad, you can't really blame for being aloof because his dad is just in his own little world. And of course, um, we do get a lot of excellent hello, adopted Master Jay. Oh, the, the butler gets a lot of zinners. So why don't we um, start off with uh, the setup to this episode? Well, it's the, the setup is you think it's going to be another one of those Jay Sherman has to save his own show things, because after after an introduction where they, they do a nice Merchant Ivory parody with the tea cozy, uh, Jay summoned to Duke's office, uh, and Duke is explaining to him that Jay Sherman's being killed in his time slot by a show called Humphrey the Hippo, which uh, I I don't know. I guess this is a relic of the '90s, but it's it's uh it's it's a parody of Barney the Purple Dinosaur. Yeah, we should mention that you know those who don't know, and I don't know if they the show is still on TV. I've certainly seen it on pop up on Netflix from time to time, and I actually watched part of a burn a Barney episode when I was at work today, unfortunately, to prepare for this episode. Oh. Um, and it, you know Barney what was a purple dinosaur. Uh, I think the concept was come up um, by a housewife. And it was it was everywhere, like you know Barney and Beanie Babies. Those were the big uh, kids crazes that started with a B. And, and, and Pogs, yeah, Pogs, yeah, that too. P's and B's. That was the nineties. Um, the Barney the dinosaur was a big purple dinosaur, but he spoke English. I, I think it happened to be it came out maybe like before or around the same time as Jurassic Park. And and that might have, you know, dinosaurs were, were big then because of the Michael Crichton book and the Spielberg movie. And he's a purple dinosaur that's like that helps uh, children. So it's a live action show with the guy like in a um, a puppet or Muppet suit. But it's not like uh, it's not like the mouth really moves like it's sort of it's a it's an OK design, but like it's not a, a great Muppet by any means. And it's, it's like, a toyetic it's, design. It's a toyetic design. Exactly. And he's like. How you doing, kids? Hmm, well, did, did you break the lock on your bicycle? We better find the key to fix it. Well, that was the thing about, about Barney, because Barney really was this nothing show that was kind of mildly educational uh, and just kind of there to entertain toddlers. Uh, yeah. And it had this overnight s- tremendous surge in popularity. I don't know if a bunch of people had mated one to two years before, thus creating a perfect audience for this show, but... It, it had such a meteoric rise to popularity and media saturation that it had uh, a backlash that was just as swift and just as harsh. And the 90s is full of shitty Barney parodies. And I've got to say, the critic has a very subtle, very unique take on its Barney parody, which I vastly prefer. You know, that's well said. Um, I mean, 
Barney jokes were even in in movies well after Barney had finished with its mainstream popularity. I recall um, there's a, a movie that it's an okay spoof movie. It's Mafia, starring Jay Moore. Oh, Jane Austen's Mafia. Yeah, Jane Austen's Mafia. Speaking of Merchant Ivory. Uh, yeah, exactly. And um, at the end, you know, it does sort of a montage with the song "We Are Family," <laughs> with all these people getting assassinated by the mob, and one of them is a is a Barney the Dinosaur ripoff. I think it's a different color. What, what what's a shitty uh, Barney joke from the '90s you remember, Thrasher? Well, one particular one, and this is just because it was so typical. But the Fresh Prince of Bel Air had a Barney episode, really, where okay. yeah, it was like it was a peach colored whale named. Billy or Freddy or something like that. <clears throat> and it was just, you know, beat for beat Barney, did silly dances and sang stupid songs. Uh, and the whole the whole joke, and this was so often the joke in a Barney parody, was that the guy under the suit was just a complete and total asshole. And the he, whole did conflict he, did he have, of the yeah, episode did he ever... is none of the adults want to have anything okay. to do with Barney because they think he's stupid, but then they get... Their, their hatred of Barney is then justified by the character being a complete asshole. And then the kid's getting disillusioned because a tape gets out of the guy in the suit swearing and chewing somebody out and smoking a cigar and whatnot. Just one minute, I have to check on something. Can you talk about another Barney scenario? Oh, no, 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 no certainly. Um, and actually, uh, if you watched another Relic of the 90s, uh, which uh, Talk Soup, which has uh, risen and fallen several times, I think was recently canceled for the most recent time last year. I'm sure it will come back within two years. It always does. But um, there was a fixture on a lot of 90s talk shows. There was a stand-up comedian who created a persona called Blarney, and he wore his own purple dinosaur costume, but it looked uh, it looked a lot more raptorish. He wore a leather jacket, and he had sunglasses, stubble on the costume, a perpetually lit cigarette, um, and it was Barney as filtered through through Andrew Dice Clay, and the guy showed up in this costume on a number of a number of talk shows at the time. Uh, uh, Richard, not Richard Bay. Yeah, Richard Bay was one of them. I think the, an early version of the Jerry Springer show he appeared on. Uh, and and the, the whole novelty of the act was just him saying dirty jokes dressed as a purple dinosaur. But he always tried to pitch it as, you know, I'm a, I'm a, this is a comic persona for adults that are tired of Barney. Barney's too sweet. I'm the sour that balances it out. Oh, and as long as we're talking about 90s comedians, uh, 90s comedian Mark Wiener, who uh, is most famous for doing his his head puppets, where he would build like a little stage with a little tiny puppet body, but he'd stick his head in, and he'd assume different characters and do these weird puppet shows. He had a show on Nickelodeon uh, called Wienerville, and there was a character on that show, uh, Boney, who was an animated dinosaur skeleton who hated everybody and wore biker clothes. That was a more sophisticated uh, Barney parody, if only because it was a recurring character on the show. So he, so given time, he was allowed to be more than just a one-joke puppet. Yeah, I recall I was in Boy Scouts at the time, and people would make fun of the Barney theme song with dirty lyrics, you know, where it goes like, I love you, you love me, we're a happy family, and we, you know, would think of, like, nasty things to say. Um, one last bad Barney 90s joke, and then we will get back to the critic, I promise. Um, there is a game uh, for the computer called Jagged Alliance Deadly Games. I think it's the second in the series. I don't know if you're familiar with this, Thrasher. I've, I've heard of it. I've, sadly, I've never played it. Yeah, so it's a bit like the game XCOM if you played it. It's turn-based, but you're a series of mercenaries 
you you form a team of mercenaries and you have them go on missions in uh in an unspecified like Central American jungle. And and the neat twist with the game is one of is um you know different people on your team, the mercs, not only have different stats, but they have different political affiliations and relationships with each other. Cool. And so if you have, like, a, a hardcore Republican against, like, a, um, a a beatnik Democrat, they might start shooting each other in between rounds, trying to kill each other. Because you know those beatnik mercenaries. <laughs> yeah, South yeah. America. It's it's. But one of, the, caric- one of the, the guys, in his bio, it said he used to play, be the host of a popular kids program. And sure enough, this character's in the game, this mercenary, sounds just like Barney. And so he's blowing away these mercenaries and these not very good, you know, overhead DOS graphics. He's like, I'm going to shoot you in the face. <laughs> and I, I think that's, you know, it's an odd place to do a Barney reference, but it's um, it, it fits with sort of the goofy setting of the game. Oh, well, so, yeah, that that's that's our, our bait and switch setup is that uh, you think the episode's going to be about Jay trying to save his show from uh, from Humphrey the Hippo, and Humphrey the Hippo does dodge does dog him quite frequently. But that all changes when, to get some solace, he goes to visit his parents, and we find out about the debutante ball. Yes, you see, you see footage, uh, vintage footage, I should say, of the mother Eleanor with her maiden name of Eleanor uh, Wigglesworth. <laughs> And you see sort of like a newsreel and um, of her. She was, you know, the hit of the debutante ball. I think uh, one of the, the boys she was seeing at the time was Bob Fosse. Oh, yeah. They do a little Bob Fosse dance uh, routine. And apparently uh, Eleanor is related to J. Edgar Hoover. Yes. There's a wonderful little <laughs> gag where you see a large what you think is a large woman leaving the debutante ball. And the narrator's like, what's where? Where are you trying to get off? Go to miss. And then it turns around. Why? It's FBI director J. Edgar Hoover, obviously leaving the policeman's masquerade ball. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then, you know, Jay, Jay Sherman makes a, a crack about uh, makes a crack about J. Edgar Hoover. And she goes, Jay, don't make fun of your uncle Edgar. Yeah, there's a really good, um, that's my dog, Dancer. Hi, Dancer. Or not Dancer, that's the dead one. Uh, Spock. Actually, I believe your contract requires you to have a dog named Prancer. Very good. Uh, Spock, I meant. Dancer is my old corgi. This is a new one. Anyway, dog, be quiet. Hush. Um, that, that's good podcasting there. <laughs> so, uh, you mentioned butler jokes. There's a good one uh, near the beginning where Jay's going back home and like a college student, he brings all his laundry home, and there's one red pair of undies that falls to the ground, and he goes to the butler, can you get those? And he says, if I have a long enough stick. And he carries the red underwear with a huge stick. And then later the gag pays off, where I, I forget the line of dialogue exactly. Um, do you remember, Thrasher? Well, uh, Jay's talking to his father, and then uh, the butler comes in with the stick and the underwear on fire. And, and he's saying, like, oh, d- I'm sorry, uh, Master, but I was cleaning the clothes, and somehow Jay's dainties were set on fire. I wonder why they burn so long. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's it, it's a fun, like, sort of out-of-left-field Joke, which is part of the the fun of when Jay returns home. Either the butler will kind of get mean to him, or you get a goofy joke from the dad. Not a whole lot of jokes from Franklin, uh, the father. But, you know, this is a mother-daughter-focused episode. As we mentioned, and so she, Eleanor, wants her daughter Margot to go to the debutante ball. And they get in a big argument. She says, you can't make me go to the debutante ball. 
um, it's hypocritical, all this stuff. She makes this big argument, and you know, she's she's sort of a a bit of a tomboy, I'd say, wouldn't you? Well, I don't know if I don't know if I would uh, classify her as a tomboy, but she she's very forthright, and she she calls the reason she doesn't want to participate in the debutante ball is she considers it old fashioned, uh, sexist, yeah. and elitist, and in fact, it is all three of those things. <laughs> Right, and she further expresses her opinions about the debutante ball when she makes a speech there. But, I mean, this next sequence where Margot, or where the mother changes Margot's mind, is so dark. Even though I had seen this episode before, I watched it again this morning before the show, and I just said out loud, oh my god, I can't believe they're going there. It's very laugh so you don't cry. (laughs) Yeah, um, so what it is, as they've set up uh, way back in the pilot, is... um, Margot loves to ride horses, and, and she has her own horse. And um, Jay says, and first the mother sends Jay to convince his sister, Margot, to uh, to go to the debutante ball. And then that doesn't really work, but Jay doesn't give a huge effort to try and change her mind. And uh, he says, oh, m- mother, you know, uh, she has your will. And then she responds with, she may have my will, but she doesn't have my gun. And cocks the gun, goes well, towards the horse. Well, first she gets the gun out of the freezer. Yes. And then in the kitchen, there's a jar labeled flour, <laughs> a jar labeled sugar, and a jar labeled bullets. Bullets. Right. And she loads <laughs> the gun, and she goes out to Margot's horse. Uh, you know, uh, what is that? I was going to say, was it cocks the gun? Is that the phrase? It's, I know nothing about guns. Well, so. she, she, she draws back the hammer to be threatened. Uh, that, that's what I'm looking for. Yeah, draws back the hammer. It says, if you don't go to the debutante ball, I'm going to do the rudest thing I've ever done. I'm going to shoot your horse. I just love the way she said, the rudest. Yeah. And it, it, it's it's really sad and painful to watch because Margo is saying, I'm begging you, stop. And then, it, you know, there's a lot of tension, real tension, I think. And uh, she counts down four she cock, you know, she points the gun at the the horse, and you hear see a close up of the horse blinking, and counts all the way down to to one, and is right about to pull the trigger when she gives in. It's it is dark. Now, do you think this is a more effective sort of way to get into the story than what we saw last week's episode, Dial M for Mother? I I don't know if it's more effective, but I love how much of a force Eleanor is in this episode, and I love that the stakes are raised so quickly. I love that that an innocent horse's life is on the line because of this... What is it in the end uh, for Margot, both Margot and Jay, a very trivial debutante ball? Yeah, you know, I was thinking about this one compared to last week's episode, and... I think this episode might have a better story, but I think last week's episode, Dial M for Mother, had better jokes. Hmm. Had a, had a worse story, but better jokes. And this one is more story-based, but fewer jokes in there. Well, I suppose here, here the humor is very situational. There aren't that many direct gags. Sure. Uh, that's right, sure. It's not like a laugh a minute like that fire truck you heard in the background. <laughs> My ride's here. Oh, Thrasher, always riding on the nearest fire truck. Burn, baby, burn. Uh, then we get to see a clip of Humphrey the Hippo, the hippo, and I like how she has friends named after movie stars. Oh, yeah, a Burt Backer Raccoon, uh, Robin the Bloodsucking Leech. I forget what Rabbit, the other one Rabbit De Niro. <laughs> Rabbit De Niro. <laughs> you, you hopping to me? Are you hopping to me? Not that that's in the episode. We just get the names. Sure, and uh, Humphrey the Hippo... You know, doesn't uh, sort of looks like Barney, but um, 
uh, certainly the voice I, I think is, is similar more so than the look, but it's a bit, it's a bit deeper. Um, and we get a great gag that they also pay off uh, later in the episode. And I believe later in the series where Duke can touch Jay Sherman's tummy and he, he giggles like the Pillsbury Doughboy. <laughs> and it makes me laugh every time, even though they do the joke like 10 times in this episode repeatedly. <laughs> it's it's a perfect running gag. And I love how you know, Jay even pointed out, that's humiliating. Stop doing it. You've bruised my liver. Yeah, uh, there's now there's a joke coming up. I'm wondering if this is the one that your dad laughed at. And it's when um, Margot's getting fit for her clothes. And the hairdresser's like, uh, do you deserve virginal white? Because if you don't, you have to wear an off white, what we call a hussy white. So which will it be, white, white? And she says, yes, except for the gloves. God, I love that gag. But that's that, that's, a, that's a gag I quote. I have very, I use the phrase hussy white many times <laughs> a year, many more times than I think anyone would expect. That's a joke I did not get in sixth grade when I watched The Critic on its original run. <laughs> but it's, uh, Margot's been giving handjobs, who knew? But no, that's not that is not the one that gave my dad the one of the biggest belly laughs I'd ever heard him give. Okay, I guess we'll come to that later in the show. Indeed. No, I love though. I love all the little little bits that they get with her preparing for the uh, debutante ball, such as when she's bathing in milk and her mother's there. More rose petals, more fresh <laughs> milk. It's just this such this imperial thing that's going on. Well, and it's and this I, I can't pronounce that word. It's like um, old-fashioned, but it's really something they used to do to prepare people for these sort of things, or even that ancient royalty would do, was have, you know, baths and milk and honey. It's not just an expression. It's something that was really done. Oh, yeah, or like, or where, like, a, uh, on, uh, a young nobleman upon his wedding night would would uh, consume a, a raw rabbit's liver. Oh, that's another one? Is it to uh, Yes, in certain, certain provinces in Europe that was done because it was mm. believed that it would impart uh, virility, potency, and stamina yeah. to the prince so that he could conceive an heir. That's uh, inter- interesting. You have a, a joke in here. They're trying to find a date for Margot, and you, you get this severely inbred individual with blue blood. Was it Lloyd Winthrop the 13th? <laughs> yeah, it, it's, um, it's a wonderful portrayal of a nerd. What is it? Now t- tell me, Lloyd... What's seven times nine? Like, um, uh, uh, and it does this wonderful little finger waggle animation. Thirteen. And Franklin's like, right on the money. Sharp as uh, attack that. Yeah, sharp as attack that one. It's uh, <laughs> he's actual blue blood. He can only receive transfusions from George Plimpton and Mrs. Walter Cronkite. <laughs> it's a pretty good, a pretty funny joke. Um, and. You know, and Jay valiantly uh, volunteers to be Margot's date. Uh, yeah. <laughs> then, then we get that wonderful thing. It's like, well, what am I going to do? Well, I was just going to give you some rubber bands to play with, but if you like, you can come with us to the debutante ball as my escort. Oh, I could have had rubber bands. <laughs> Franklin, the father, is so sincere with his line readings. I think that's part of what sells it. Well, I also love that did one of the ways uh, uh, Humphrey the Hippo intrudes on this is that Jay's father is a fan, and he sings and dances along to the Stick Out Your Toe <laughs> song. 
Yeah, um, and also Jay Sherman has a run-in with Humphrey the Himpo. He's going to rent a video from the video rental store. And uh, younger listeners, you might not know what that is. <laughs> so let me explain. Before there were red boxes, little machines where you could rent what movie you wanted, or you know, before there was Apple TV or, or you know, uh, Voodoo or, or and, what and have before you. Before the replicants were hunting us to extinction. That's right. You had to physically, I know this sounds old-fashioned, but stick with me here. You have to walk, this is so condescending, <laughs> you have to walk into a store and uh, spend maybe about 20 minutes looking around at all the videos and seeing that all the, the new hotness is uh, checked out. And you probably pick either a new release you're not that fond of, or you pick some old movie that's so beat up the you have to do just the tracking all the time on your VCR. <laughs> and uh, and then you go and rent something. I mean, I used to work at uh, Blockbuster Video for a few years. Um, and I started right when DVD took off, and that's a that's a story in itself, which I talked about a while ago, I think, on the sequel cast. Oh, indeed. Um, but anyway, you know, Jay notices that there is a Humphrey the Hippo is doing, you know, a sort of a, a book signing or something there, and he's, he's signing his, his latest uh, his latest rap video, "Hug the Police." And they even show the album, and that is the line where they say, it's his new rap album, Hugged Up Police, and my dad just started cracking up and could not stop laughing. That's a rela- That's uh, in relation to NWA's song, Fuck the Police. Oh, yeah. Oh, fuck the police, I believe it's The pronounced. police, right, yes. But yeah, it just, it's just like that, that gag, it, it brings me so much more joy because my dad got such a kick out of it. That's not the joke I would have guessed, but yeah, that's a that's a very funny, uh, if if not timely, joke at the time. And and Jay is really mean uh, to Humphrey and to an extent the kids. <laughs> and Humphrey's trying yeah. to be so nice. He's like, "Please, Jay, my philosophy is love and dance, not hate and don't dance." <laughs> yeah, which which makes it even funnier the payoff we get uh, further along in the storyline. But no spoilers quite yet. Nope. I don't know if you can call it a spoiler if the show's like. What twenty years old? You you'd think, but if the internet has taught me anything, everything is a spoiler, including a scene within a story in which something is foreshadowed. I don't get when people say trailers have spoilers in them. Well, sometimes they do, but like it's official marketing material put out by the studio. Like I can understand if you want to go dark, but that's really hard to do. The way I look at it, the internet is the land of spoilers. And if you're like, oh, I was on the internet and I read a spoiler, it's like, well, what did you think would happen? Well, you know what's fascinating is it's, at some point, uh, people in marketing realized that trailers could be much more effective if they created a certain sense of, of mystery and if they, you know, they left gaps that you could fill with your own desire to see the film. But if yeah. you watch a classic uh, movie trailer from like before the, uh, from like, I guess for, for like the, the early 70s and before the early 70s, a lot of those trailers, I'll dare say most, tell you the whole movie. Right. I mean, it's it's nothing new. And also, um, one thing some old trailers would do sometimes is show an entire scene of a movie. Oh, yeah. And, then, and that's course, it. Yeah. The announcement, no one will be admitted during the breathtaking aerial escape scene. Right. Yeah. Uh, so it just all depends. I mean, yeah, there were some old trailers, you know, talking about ones that ruined the plot that go like a whole five minutes uh, even. And uh, that's why I'm a bit – I'm pleased with um, Warner Brothers marketing. Shut up, dogs. 
I'm pleased with Warner Brothers marketing for Suicide Squad because I can't really tell what the plot is, and they're just sort of introducing the tone and the sort of highlights of what the characters are and what they can do. I'll, I'll do you, do you one better. Uh, I can't tell what the hell anything is in those trailers. Um. How so? You don't recognize the characters, or well, no? It's not that I don't recognize the characters. It's that at the beginning, it, there's always a point in all the Suicide Squad trailers where they have to spell out what everyone's powers slash kind of job on the team is, because uh, of course they don't trust anyone in the audience to know, and, and they don't trust us to wait to find out in the movie. But then it's all just a bunch of disjointed scenes. All I know is there's going to be some shooting involved. <laughs> Yeah, I have no idea what the stakes are. I have no idea why I should care. I, I have no idea why I should care other than Harley Quinn, a character I'm very invested in, is in this film. And from what I can tell from that trailer, um, it, it seems like a a fun sort of portrayal. I, I like I like her attitude. Like, does she do the same accent as the cartoon? How you doing, Mister J? No, but. Uh, you know, with the way the hair looks and the way that, like, I'm perfectly fine with how that character looks and appears to act, um, based on the the, the trailer stuff. Uh, the Joker, I think, I'm a bit more um, curious about. Although you're right, like Harley Quinn is nothing we've seen in a live action film before. Well, we did see her in uh, Birds of Prey and at the end of the uh, second season of Arrow. On the on as a theatrical release. Well, okay, not not on yes. the big screen, no. right? So, back to the critic. Um, so, there's the debutante ball. So this part, okay. So I got uh, something I do need to say. This episode really sp- spoke to me uh, as as a young person because around the time this came out, uh, I was I was pressured into going to uh to the cotillion which is the southern equivalent of a debutante ball and is the cotillion at a country club or uh in, in my case it was at a yacht club ah and what's um did you have to be part of a society to go to it or is it just like if no. you're of a certain age people went to this thing and, and dressed in their finest rented clothes well, I mean, it's an it's an old it's an old upper class Southern thing where you'd you'd get all your young people within a certain area together because it's it's all about it. the the subtext of it is that it's all a, uh, it's supposed to look like a party, but it's really about announcing eligibility for marriage and to begin you know uh, courtship uh, and whatnot. Huh. It's it's just that you know now that we live in what was at the time the late twentieth century, all of those courtship pressures and arranged marriages and, and things like that had all gone away and had, in fact been been on the wane uh, since the end of the civil war reconstruction pretty much did away with all of those pressures uh, but the tradition of the cotillion still remained and it's just this big stuffy to do you get uh, drawn into was it like high school age or yeah yeah i was in high school at the time oh, okay um I don't like I I grew up for the most part in uh in the metro Atlanta area in Georgia and I felt even though I didn't go to such an event you know I certainly felt pressure to um to get married when you date someone you know they're always asking like oh is this the person you're going to marry and oh, you know Lord. it's someone you're just dating in high school and then that was a real culture shock when I moved out to the west coast 10 years ago and and uh you know I, I just assumed every relationship was 
people viewed it, oh, this is going to be a long-term thing, and uh, um, uh, that's not really the case. Yeah, well, I, I there, there's there's far there's far too many narratives about people meeting when they're kids and getting married. When in in fact, right, I, I would say that probably happens maybe five percent of the time. Uh, when that seems to be almost all of relationships is depicted in media. Yeah, that's true. I, I wonder why. Is Even it, the is Simpsons it it's did that cute? with Homer and Marge in an episode that I, I have very mixed feelings about. Huh. I don't think I've seen that one. Um, so, um, you know, in, I think they do a good job at the debutante ball in this episode of going back and forth between the A story, which is, you know, Margot dressing up and uh, going to the ball, and the B story, which is Jay's uh, gets, gets hit on and has a, um, has a special evening. Yeah, there, that, there's this mystery woman he encountered at the debutante ball, and they just hit it off. You know, uh, she's attracted to his intelligence, and he's attracted to her being attracted to him. And she says he's cuter than Roger Ebert. And in fact, that's even how uh, they're introduced. He's at the buffet, and he gets tapped on the shoulder. And goes, Excuse me, sir, but are you? Oh, for the last time, I'm not Roger Ebert. <laughs> he's like, actually, I think you're cuter than him. Oh. <laughs> it's uh it's a nice um gag. Uh, there's a, a joke that I think is I thought it was subtle but when I think of it, it it's not really where you know the debutante is supposed to um raise money allegedly to benefit something and it's benefiting people that have had head injuries. And the song that plays for the big dance sequence <laughs> is I think I'm going out of my head. <laughs> right. And I did not catch that the first 3 times I watched this episode. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I haven't heard this song before. It wasn't nice. And then I actually sit down like an idiot and listen to the lyrics. And I'm like, oh, that's a joke. (laughs) (laughs) And we get some nice, terrible choreography and all that. (laughs) And you get uh, some hammy uh, singing with John Lovitz. I like how it intercuts him flirting with the mystery woman. I don't think she's ever given a name. I tried to watch the clips a few times and I couldn't catch a name. No, she is never named. Yeah, uh, and of course in the credits, because it's a cartoon and it isn't less true does what voice. So, yeah, unnamed, but uh, we'll know her identity soon enough. But yeah, I, just, I love that when they're they're dancing under the, the blue whale in the aquarium. And that they rendered that room perfectly, by the way. And he's just singing along, I want you to want me. <laughs> it reminds me a bit of what Lovitz would do a few years later in uh, The Wedding Singer. He he had a, a small part in the beginning of the film. Yeah, but but of course, eventually Margot's uh, moral forthrightness uh, shines through when she gets up on stage and gives her gives her speech. And I lo- and you know she you know she talks about what she had said that that it's sexist, that it's elitist, uh, and that it's really just a race to see who can waste the most money when they could be, they could take that money and do real work that benefits people. And the line that's always stuck with me is when she says with the, the money, with the money you spent on this debutante ball, you could have kept this museum open on weeknight or on uh, weekends. Right. And that yeah. is, that is just so, so biting. It's biting, it's well said, and I like that the speech is to the point. You know, it's not like a five-minute speech scene. Oh, yeah. Not that you'd see such a thing in a cartoon. Uh, at the end, I think it's nice where 
the uh, the mystery woman invites Jay to come to her place, but Jay, you know, his first loyalty is to his sister, which I thought was sort of a, a, a sweet moment. It wasn't meant to be creepy, I don't think. And he was oh. like, well... Oh, no, not at all. And and I love that, you know, she she cares about him and says, no, Jay, you ha- you enjoy yourself. <laughs> you have a fun time. And he's like, uh... And the scene with him in the bedroom with the mystery woman, it it's perhaps might be the best sort of Jay Sherman hooks up scene from the first season. <laughs> oh, I love yeah. that she comes out and she says, there's a terrible secret that lies below my waist. And he's like, what ooh, could it be? A terrible secret. <laughs> Let's have a look-see. And I almost wonder, uh, I have to check the year because this might have been before this film came out. But remember the crying game? I think the crying game had already come out at this point. Let me look. So season one was uh, 94. And the crying game, which is an independent film with the, yeah, it's from '92, so it had. I bet it was a uh, crying game reference. Could, could have been, but I, I love how gleeful Jay Sherman is. Yeah, it's it's a bizarre reaction, and like he really he has he has some lines in here that really spell out his desperation, which is very funny. And it turns out he looks. The camera goes down her waist, and her pants are Henry the hippo's Humphrey the hippo's legs. She's really Humphrey the Hippo. Yep. And then he has that great line, Oh, I can't believe I was about to make love with the symbol of everything I despise. We were going to make love, right? Oh, please tell me we were going to make love. <laughs> and as they have post snuggling, she sings to him, uh, Do you know the Muffin Man? Which <laughs> 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 is such a... And, and, and she says something like, oh, how is it that a man can be... Uh, well, how is it that a man who is so inadequate in bed yeah. can be, can be like, so relaxed and confident afterwards? It's like, what did, what did you say? I said you were great, Tiger. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a great, great line reading, some fun animation. It's uh, a good, a good wrap-up to the episode. Plus, we also get Margot's kind of depressed. She didn't get to have her dance... At the ball, uh, well, other than I the love. choreograph I number. I can't believe none of those worthless, stuck-up boys asked me to dance. And the limo driver takes off his hat. And it turns out he has a, a mullet of sorts, has kind of a rock star look. Well, he has it a shock like a, of, of long, flowing tresses. Yeah, sort of like a Ron Stewart look at the time. And uh, he has a New York accent. But it, if I could, if I was a betting man, I'd say that's Maurice LaMarche doing the voice. I admit it, yeah, I admit it just might be. And but he's doing a New York accent, but at first I think he sounded a bit like Jeremy Hawk. Anyway, Margot goes out with him, and I think uh, it's it's a nice little moment. She gets to have a kiss, and and a dance. It's it really is sweet that she does get to have a little bit of romance. So overall, did you enjoy this episode? A little Deb will do ya. Season oh, one, overall, episode five. I, I did, and can I talk about my favorite joke? Yes. So it's a it's a real one two punch. But it's it's a, just a great uh, you know rapid fire series of gags. But after Margot is wrapping up her speech, the woman who's organizing the debutante ball picks up this military walkie-talkie. He goes, you know, "Betty, Veronica, take her out!" And then these two burly mercenaries dressed in ball gowns <laughs> come up on the stage and drag her away. So I like I like that. I like the the Archie reference. But then there's a live band, and as they see Margot being carried away, they shrug and they just play do 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 really quick which is a reference to an urban legend about Red Fox, which was apparently true. 
And what is that urban legend? Well, the the urban legend is uh, he ha- he was doing a show in Vegas, uh, and you know, this was like I think in the in the eighties. Um, and so when he came out on, he had a live he had a live band, and the live band was there to play him on and play him off. So he gets out on stage, and the live band plays the Sanford and Son theme, and Red Fox comes out. And he sees that it's it's like the middle of the day, and he looks out and he sees that there's only five people in the audience, and like the whole theater's empty except for those five people. And he goes, five people? Five people? I'm not going to waste time performing for five people. And he just storms off stage, and the band, not knowing what else to do, plays as he storms off. That's that's a deep cut right there, pretty funny. Oh, yeah. I love that kind of show business stuff. Yeah, I think this episode, Little Deb Will Do Ya, is, is pretty good. I, I, well, I don't think it's, you know, the funniest episode of The Critic. Um, the stuff it does with the mother and, more importantly, Margot, uh, gives a lot of heart to the show. You know, you don't always see Jay's family that much on The Critic because it's not like The Simpsons. It's not children living with their parents. It's a grown-up man, uh, single, at least in this first season, living in an apartment. You know, it's also not fish police. It's not an aquatic Jay solving mysteries at the bottom of the ocean. Huh. Yeah, no, it's not Fish Police. I I have never heard you make that noise before. I am sorry I mentioned Fish Police. I made that noise. I've never even seen Fish Police, but I listened to a podcast, Laser Time, where they had an episode about failed primetime animated you, series. You're lucky. And, I have seen Fish Police. And, I, and they played clips of Fish Police. And even those clips, you could tell... The production value was nothing special, despite the fact you had, like, John Ritter and, and some good people doing the voices. Mm. And Fish Police, uh, I recall, um, TV critics would always use it as a punchline. Uh, it looks like we're still using it as a punchline. <laughs> Apparently so. We haven't come that far since the early 90s animation boom. So we're moving to our uh, next segment, Love It's or Leave It. I'm going to let you do this, Thrasher. Ooh. If you can pull up John Lovett's IMDb page. And I can. You're going to pick a John Lovitz movie uh, that you've seen, and tell me about it. All righty, well, let me... Uh... And let me know if you're going to ask if I have, uh, if I love it, or if I or leave it. Leave it. All right, well, digging through his uh, filmography... Oh, here we go. Uh, I want to say, and this is a, a movie where uh, John Lovitz has a, has a, a part, uh, as Quasimodo in Hotel Transylvania. The first or the second? Oh, this is the first, from uh, 2012, uh, directed, I believe directed by Gendy Tartakovsky of Dexter's Laboratory fame. Yes, he also worked oh, and co-written on... co-written by Robert Smigel, all right. Huh. And he also worked on the uh, the two D animated Clone Wars series, right? Uh, Gendy Tartakovsky, yes, he did. He was the uh, director and character designer for those. In Samurai Jack, of course. Oh yeah, yes, indeed, that was his passion project. Uh, I've never seen Hotel Transylvania. I saw the trailer. I thought it looked kind of cute. Um, I, I was curious to see it mainly because of Tartakovsky. But uh, have you seen it, Thrasher? Yes, yes, I have. And would you love it or leave it? You know, I I thought I was going to, despite Gendy Kartakovsky's involvement, I really thought I was going to despise this movie. But I was hanging out with some friends last year, and they had it on, on Blu-ray, and we, we 
put it in as something that was just to have on in the background, but we all ended up watching it. It actually is a very sweet, endearing, uh, entertaining movie. It's only failing, and this is a huge failing, is that it has that uh, that cliched ending where at the end of the movie there's an arbitrary musical number where all the characters come out and dance. Is it like a 70s pop number? No, actually, it's an original song uh, oh. written for the movie, uh, and uh, I can't I can't tell if this is a brilliant parody or hack writing, but Dracula raps in the middle of the song. Uh, at any point in the movie, do they ever sing the Monster Mash? No, thankfully, they do not. I'm also vaguely curious about the sequel. Because uh, Mel Brooks has a small part in it as the father. I'm willing to risk the sequel just for Mel Brooks, but right now we're talking about the first one with John Lovitz as Quasimodo. Is Quasimodo a, a juicy part? No, no, it's 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 pretty much what you'd expect. Him swinging around, screaming about sanctuary and the bells and whatnot. How ugly is Quasimodo? You know, the funny thing is I don't even remember his character design. <laughs> So I'm guessing it's a character that's just in one or two scenes. Yeah, it's it's you know just for some quick some quick gags. I mean, Can that being said, the, the animation is actually very good. It has yeah. uh, Tartakovsky's fingerprints all over it. Can you tell the voices John Lovitz? If you know John Lovitz, yes, uh, but he he's doing just a little bit of Lon Chaney over his own voice. So unless you're a diehard mm. Lovitz fan, you're probably going to completely miss it. Interesting. I might have to give that a a shot, you know. Uh, and it's honestly more to watch the first one so the second one makes sense. Because I really want to... I'm curious about Mel Brooks in the second one. So am I. Doesn't he play Vlad the Impaler? Uh, yeah, he plays the father to Dracula. Um, very good. Now on to It Stinks, where we talk about a movie we saw recently. Uh, I watched a movie that I had to shut off after 30 minutes, and this is the second time I've tried to watch this film. Really? Right. Uh, And I've seen the first three movies in the series. This is part four. Can you guess what I'm going to talk about? This this couldn't be uh, Hellraiser, could it? No, it's Transformers Age of Extinction. Oh. Directed by Michael Bay, like the other films in the series. Um, this one, instead of starring Shia LaDouche, I mean Shia LaBeouf, stars Mark Wahlberg in the lead. And it takes place after Transformers, uh, the third one. I think it's called The Dark of the Moon, which as a title is just ludicrous in itself. Uh, Transformers Age of Extinction has Dinobots in it. I didn't even get that far. Uh, there's not miss much. Yeah, and what I saw of the movie, and it's two and a half hours, and that's part of the reason why I shut it off. Oh, it does not need to be that long. It ha- have you seen this one? Yes, yes, I have. Okay. But I'll let you finish before I weigh in. Sure, and and, and, and to be fair, full disclosure, I did not see the whole thing, and it sounds like you did. Um, the plot com- where the government is attacking Autobots uh, because this like other robot transformer thing is, is helping them, and they compare robots or illegal aliens in this country. I thought that was sort of a clever angle to to go on, but they didn't seem to do a lot with it. And I just sort of got bored by so much explosions during the scene where Optimus Prime kind of wake up, wakes up in Marky Mark's garage and starts uh, shooting at the feds 
and uh, tries to make some escape of some sort. Uh, Marky Mark is bland. Shia LaBeouf wasn't great, but at least in the in the first movie, I thought he you know was of a, a good age to play uh, Spike Whitwicky, was which was a character from the cartoon. Although that character is more of a I think the son of a construction worker or something. Uh, um, son of uh, in the in the comic book, he was the son of a mechanic. In the animated series, he was the son of a construction engineer. Right there, you go. Um, so yeah, you know, and I was I out of the Transformers live action movies, I loved the first one, disliked the second one. Although the second one was so weird, it's kind of interesting in spite of itself. And the third one, I thought, uh, while having some like really impressive uh, stunts and stuff. Was was just okay, and I thought Optimus Prime did some things that felt out of character to me, where he sort of blasted the um, the bad guy voiced by Leonard Nimoy like right in, in cold blank range, a shot to the head it seemed a bit uh, brutal. Well, I think um, El- Elliot Kalin summed it up best when he says that in in this movie, Optimus Prime shows that he's a man of peace by constantly screaming "I'll kill you," and shows that he's a man of honor by constantly shooting his enemies in the back. Right, and I, I didn't really like the the redesign they did for all the robots in these live-action Transformers movies. Like, I'm not a huge... Um, I enjoy the cartoon as a kid, but I, I only maybe watched half a dozen episodes that I had on videotape over and over again. It wasn't like I memorized the whole series. But at least those... You can look at those robot designs and pick out who it is. And I think in the Transformers live-action film... They sort of over-designed it just because they could. Every, every you know, body part has a spinning gear, and they all sort of look the same after a bit. And uh, I, I don't like the mouth in Optimus Prime either, as long as I'm complaining. Yeah, so, I mean, as long as we're, we're digging that, I think I would have liked to have seen him with his faceplate. Uh, of course, I also would have liked to have seen him in a better movie. Um because I've I've seen I've seen the first live action Transformers film and the third I've seen about half of the second and and I've seen all of Age of Extinction. So why did those you see all three, of the fourth one? Those first three movies are bad, but I will just say that the fourth is outright unsavory. How so? Detestable in every way a film can be detestable. Well, you, well, you said you you left after about a half hour, so I'm guessing did you get to the scene about uh, about Mark Wahlberg's daughter's boyfriend? No. Okay. Uh so yeah, so so um his daughter I believe is like is like 15 or 16 or something. She she she's she's young. She's like learning how to drive age, but her boyfriend is like in his 20s. Uh and so right up that that sets up something uh unsavory and something that that starts to feel very statutory if you know what i mean but yeah, yeah. then the movie points this out and when the movie points this out the boyfriend has laminated a card explaining a local law called the Romeo and Juliet law which explains that if the pre if the relationship existed when they were both minors Legally, it can continue after one of them is no longer a minor, despite the fact that it's still a very sizable age difference. Huh. And and that the movie just, like, glosses over, okay, and everybody seems fine with it after that. It's really... And that's just one of the many morally questionable things that are in this movie. Then there's what also else? just bad filmmaking, such yeah. as the scene where the robot voiced by John Goodman... Uh, there's a pitched battle, and he's firing randomly in the air and screaming, "Man down, man down!" 
but he's the only person there. Who is he talking about, and who is he talking to? It doesn't help that a lot of these action scenes are shot like with, with close-ups, real tight framing, so you don't get a sense of the geography. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of that as well. Hey, what's a movie you saw recently, Thrasher? Well, it's, it's not exactly a movie. It's kind of skirting that definition. But uh, I was uh, hanging out uh, at a, a friend's house uh, late at night, and he had Hulu up, and we ended up watching the pilot episode for the original Lost in Space series, which is about TV movie length for the time. What did it have any different cast from the regular series? Uh, no, the the cast is the same uh, except uh, Doctor except Jonathan Harris isn't in it. There is no Doctor Smith in the original pilot. Oh, that is weird. And and it's kind of funny because the whole the whole reason it started is just arbitrarily. He said, uh, you know, I've always been I've always been told I should see this show. Might as well start now. <laughs> hmm. See if it lives up to its reputation. And I was really curious to ask him what reputation he was referring to. Uh, the fun reputation, the cheesy reputation, or the giant carrot reputation? And how did it do on those three fronts? Well, I mean, th- this is the funny thing. It's very, very different than a pilot today, because it, it, it does introduce the characters, but the whole purpose of this pilot, this is a pilot that never aired. Uh, it, this was... a. Uh, effectively this was a reel to shop around the networks for Irwin Allen to say look what this show could do so you get to see all the special effects how they'd be laid out all the character traits and personalities um like it's it's like a dry run for the show and like hmm. a, a like a lot of a lot of focus is put on things that people in the network are probably going to care about but the viewers might not because it's all about selling the idea for the show all right. Um, uh, I will say this: uh, it does work. Uh, th- there is a second pilot, which is the one that did air, that had uh, Doctor Smith in it. Much, much better pilot, uh, better story, faster moving. Doctor Smith adds some much needed conflict. Um, from that, from there, though, you'll have to judge the show for yourself. Was it more enjoyable than the movie from the late nineties? You know, for me, it was. Okay. It was a nice. It was a nice throwback. And you found you watched this on Hulu, you said? Uh, yeah, yes, this was on Hulu. And I managed to catch uh, Transformers: Age of Extinction on uh, Amazon Prime. Is the where I watched it. So. Or either of those services letting us wet our beaks? Nope. Damn. I was hoping to get my beak wet tonight. It's going to be a dry beak, so dry it's going to crack off from the dryness. That was a bit. I wouldn't say vulgar, but gross. Anyway. Well, well, we've lost all the penguins in the audience. And all the audience. <laughs> so let's move on to the final section, Buy My Book, in which we pimp our website, social media stuff, how to best get in contact with us, and so forth. Thrasher? Oh, uh, I, I will be indulged to, to begin. Uh, well, well, well. So I guess my, the big thing I'm going to hype, and this is you know for for all you you know long term future listeners, if you want to uh, meet me in person, uh, I just got the confirmation today that I will be uh, at the Origins Game Fair. Uh, that's in uh, Columbus, Ohio. That's going to be the weekend of uh, June 16th. Uh, I'll be uh, running a whole bunch of special events uh, out there. Uh, 
but it should be fun uh, fun all around if you're into to tabletop gaming uh, or in the case of seeing me there if you're into podcasting or if you just want to punch my smug face uh, I will be in Columbus, Ohio. And if people wanted to see what events you were running at the Origins Game Fair, what should they look for? Oh, just go to uh, originsgamefair.com. Uh, the event listing is live. Uh, you can find all of my events listed under Kettle of Fish Productions. All right. And what's your handle on Twitter? Handle on Twitter is at Internet Mayor. Uh, and I'm having a lot of fun. I've uh, gained a lot of followers uh, this week. Ten! A new record! Uh <laughs> And I've just been—I've been having a lot of humorous exchanges with people. Uh, less less focus on forcing my jokes upon the internet, and more focus on uh, interacting with people. It's always good to engage people in a conversation. Indeed, like you and I. Yes, or us and our listeners. Um, the Twitter for this show is at Critic Podcast. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at MattWBT. That's at M-A-T-W-B-T. Also, you can contribute to a monthly basis uh, to help out the show at patreon.com slash M-A-T-W-B-T. Mm-hmm. Every little bit helps. A little um, dab will do you. I was going to say a little tuckus will do you, but that doesn't make sense. Oh, that's was, a great gag. <laughs> I was thinking we neglected to talk about this. Where Oh, yeah, where Jay Sherman gets his butt stuck in the trap door to Margot's treehouse, and the paparazzi is just in their backyard for some reason. <laughs> Snaps a photo, which later we see Doris Growl reading in a gossip mag, just a photo of Jay's butt says, took us by surprise. <laughs> it's like, ah, took us by surprise. Has that nice smoker's cough there at the end. Definitely smoker's voice, not just a cough, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, Facebook.com slash The Critic Podcast. You can also get a hold of us on there. So it looks like next week we will be talking about another episode of The Critic. I should hope so. Season 1, episode 7. Sorry, episode 6. I was about to say. Yeah. Eyes on the Prize. Ooh, is it too early to talk about a special guest? Uh, it is just because I want to confirm he can he can make it, and I bet he will. But um, well, there is a certain percentage chance we will have a special guest next week. And uh, this next week's episode features some uh, some voice work by the late Phil Hartman. Oh, indeed. In two different parts, but I didn't realize I had to do some research to find that out. So, well, if you're going to have the glue, you're going to use them all over. That's right. And of course, uh, as we mentioned, I think on the the John Lovitz episode extensively, uh, John Lovitz and Phil Hartman were close friends, uh, both uh, professionally and in their personal lives. So for Shermometer critiquing the critic, this is Matt. And this is William Thrasher. Saying, The show's over, sir. You're going to have to leave the theater. Mm, I love Humphrey the Hippo. She has the best surprise below the waist. Ho, 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 stick out your toe. He, 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 stick out your knee. Delightful.